0: This is Broadcast Mysteries, a podcast, a story about a case of the unexplained, the uncanny, and the unsolved. I'm Carolee Gerwing. Cole Atkins disappeared on August 20th, 1997. August 20th, a Tuesday. I was about eight years old, living in the west end of Edmonton most likely playing at a park, or riding bikes, or having a family day at the beach, which my family tended to do during those hot summer days in August when I was a child. But I don't really remember what I was doing, and neither do my parents. The best my mom could come up with was that a few days later we would probably be at my grandma's house celebrating what was her 71st birthday. I don't really remember that, I do remember celebrating my grandma's birthdays as a kid, but I don't remember that particular birthday. It really makes you wonder about memory, and how reliable something like that is. This entire podcast is based around the memories of a few people about an event that happened nearly two decades ago. I read a theory about memory that I thought was particularly relevant to this podcast. The theory stated something like, and this is just my loose, probably misunderstood version of that theory, that we don't actually remember things, but rather we remember the last time we remembered that particular thing. So over the course of time, our minds effortlessly bend and twist and change the things that we know as memories into something different. Now, what this has to do with today's episode, or the podcast in general, is sort of up to you. Mostly this is just me rambling on about things that go through my mind after six plus months of thinking about this particular subject. But anyway, let's get back to it. August 20th. The big day. I've gone over the events of this day, basically with a fine tooth comb, over and over and over again. And still, so much of this day is a cloud of black smoke, which makes grabbing onto it nearly impossible. And yet, so much of this day is filled with the mundane, with the uncanny, that it's frustrating. There really isn't all that known that can help us figure out what might have happened on that day two decades ago. So today, we're going to focus not necessarily on the when, but on the other details, like the where, Cole's place of work, the what, his role there, and of course, the who. When it comes to Cole's work, I figured what better place to start than the person he laid next to every night that he worked at Revolver. I'm talking of course about Carrie Atkins, Cole's wife. And while we've stated in a previous episode that Cole kept his work life and his home life separate, there are aspects that he couldn't hide. Not from Carrie, at least. Here's what she had to say. So I'm just going to ask, what do you know about Revolver? Like, what's their deal? How did Cole get started there? Well, Cole was recruited. Recruited?
1: Really? Yep. Sometime in and around when he was finishing up his masters, I think. Robbie wasn't born yet, but if I remember correctly, I was pregnant at the time. i just found out, or found out not too long ago. I remember because when Cole landed the job, there was a huge weight lifted off both of our shoulders. It was April or May, maybe June? Sometime in there. Let's just call it sometime in the spring? (laughs) Sure. So he got the job sometime in the spring, and he was recruited because of a paper he had written that got published. Hold on. I think I have it here.
0: She brought me the paper. It was published in Scientific Ideas Alberta, a magazine that ran for most of the 80s and 90s, only to fall in the early 2000s. The title of the article was Beam Me Up, or How to Abuse Quantum Entanglement in Relation to Einstein-Podolsky-Rosen Channels. A bit of a mouthful, huh?
1: Here it is. You can have this one. Oh, are you sure? Oh yeah, I've got a few more copies. Cole insisted we buy basically every one we saw. He was very proud that he got in. Was this his first time being published? Nope, it wasn't his last either. Why was he so proud then? Well, this was an idea that was a little out there. At least that's the polite way you might put it. But he was just shocked that a serious magazine would pick it up is all. What was the article about? I'm not 100% sure on this. Science was never really my forte, but when Cole explained it, it was that traveling between two spaces instantly, sort of like what they did in Star Trek, it was not just theoretically possible, but probable.
0: I read the article when I got home, and it certainly is out there. Like Carrie, I'm not an expert in science, particularly theoretical physics, So a whole whack of it just went over my head, but it wasn't something, at least the core of the idea, which I did get, that you forget, at least not very easily. I briefly skimmed it when Carrie handed it to me, but at the time, I felt that there were more important things to discuss, so I redirected the conversation back to Revolver. Let's sort of go back. Can you tell me about Revolver? I know you said that Cole was very hush-hush, right? He was, yeah. But there must have been something, clues, anything you can remember or anything you kept that may give us a clue. All right. Well, I know
1: he took his work very seriously. His role at Revolver, the time he spent there, it wasn't wasn't really the kind of career that you fall into. It was something that was demanding and you would have to be all in. And Cole was all in? Oh, yeah. Was he neglectful? No. No, nothing like that. Cole was he was an expert at leaving work at work and coming home, but you could tell. A wife can tell. And it was on his face. Or in his words. Like like he wasn't there not often, but enough that you notice.
0: Yeah. What about a guy named Sylvester Woods? Did he ever talk about
1: him? Of course, yeah. Still worked really closely with Cole and he was kind of his partner. His partner? Well, maybe that's not the right word, but he worked with Cole, like, together. Cole thought he was quite smart, and he spoke very highly of him, usually. Usually? As in, not all of the time? Well, no one speaks about their co-workers in a positive way 100% of the time. I mean, you spend that much time with somebody, there's bound to be little things that bug you. Do you remember what bugged Cole? Well, so was a little insecure he had these bold ideas, but if they were shot down or disproven, he didn't like that, and Cole could tell. Why do you ask about Syl?
0: Well, at the time, the cops were um, very interested in him. They were? Yeah, from what I've gathered, he was basically the prime suspect. Do you think maybe they had reason to harm Cole? No. We had
1: Syl over for dinner and by the house quite often. He was always friendly and Cole was always happy to have him. I mean he's a bit odd which is probably why the police were so interested in him but I knew so. I don't think he's capable.
0: Not capable. I thought about those words the entire drive home and for a while after that and for the first time I found myself disagreeing with Carrie in a major way. Anyone and I mean anyone is capable of murder. You see it every day. That same reaction Carrie had about Sylvester Woods. It's the same type of thing you hear when people get asked about a killer. He seems so nice. Weird, but nice. He wouldn't hurt a fly. I thought about the case in a new way. For the first time since I started investigating the disappearance of Cole Atkins, I saw this as something simple. All the conspiracies and grand mysteries floated away. And for a moment, I saw this as something basic, and the words formed in my head like they were transmitted directly into my brain, like a giant, flashing billboard that I couldn't avoid. Cole Atkins was murdered. This is an idea that was first relayed to me by the same person that brought me the case in the first place. Jamie Lloyd, Cole's cousin and lifelong best friend. He has been adamant, convinced even, that Cole's disappearance was more nefarious, an act of evil, rather than some act of cowardice on Cole's part. He has his series, one of which revolved around the Truffaut family, and Cole as a sort of martyr to expose the famous crime family. Another, a workplace accident that required a company-wide cover-up. Or even Cole mixed up in a gang war and he was simply collateral damage. And yet, when I brought up the idea that the police were targeting Sylvester Woods, that was something that he had never considered. And yet, it wasn't an idea, unlike Kerry Atkins, that he immediately dismissed. Here he is. So what originally made you suspect Revolver? I mean in the sense that someone there was involved in Cole's disappearance.
2: Nothing else made sense to me. Once you established the fact, or at least the theory that Cole didn't just flee the fucking city... If you believe in that, man, nothing else makes even one lick of sense.
0: Okay, so if you assume that Cole didn't leave on his own, then someone must have done something to him, and that someone has to have worked at Revolver.
2: Worked, or owned.
0: You mean the Truffauts? Uh Uh-huh. You know, I'm not sure I'm sold on this whole drug war idea. I may not have known Cole as well as you have, but I think it's safe to assume, given that what I do know about him... That he wasn't the drug dealer or drug mule type. I mean... No, he wasn't. He's just no Walter White.
2: Oh, I agree.
0: Then why did they need him gone, if not for drugs?
2: It's just so painfully obvious that they are hiding something. Not to mention it's widely known fact that they have the cops in their back pocket. Or on their payroll anyways. Whatever you want to call it.
0: Is that a fact?
2: Come on, Gerwing. It's not something that's written down or set in stone or anything. It's just something you hear. And when you hear the same thing enough times, well, it starts to really feel less like people talking and more like the truth.
0: That's a good point.
2: Like I've said countless times before, the cop's investigation was both careless and even lazy.
0: Detective Lee would disagree.
2: I know he would. It's not him I'm talking about. He, as far as I can tell, was legit. It's the other one, his partner.
0: Clary Cusio?
2: Yeah. I never got a good feeling about him. And honestly, I don't think Lieb had a good feeling about him either. There was something about those two, the way they exchanged words. There wasn't trust there.
0: Okay, this comment I found a little ridiculous. This is nothing against Jamie, but I'm skeptical whether he was able to make an observation like that based on the few times he actually saw Detective Lieb and Claire Cuzio together. But he had a point, and I called Lieb, who I've talked to a few times since our interview, and he is no longer in contact with Detective Claracuzio. He retired, not too long after Cole's case went cold, and he sort of vanished. Not in the same way Cole did, but just in the way that he made it difficult to find him. He lives somewhere in southern Alberta. I called a number that was supposedly his, but there was no answer and he never called me back. Suspicious, yes, but not evidence of guilt by any means. Okay, let's bring this back to Revolver. What about Sylvester Woods? Leib was very adamant that this Woods guy was a possible suspect.
2: That could mean a lot of things.
0: You knew him, right?
2: A bit, yeah.
0: Okay, what does that mean?
2: It means I had a few beers with him. Only with Cole present. He was quiet. He was very smart. And honestly, he had a bit of a stick up his ass. Didn't seem to think too much of me.
0: What gave you that idea?
2: Nothing he said. Just a feeling he gave me never looked me in the eye, never really answering questions I asked. Actually, he would, but not to me. He was speaking directly to Cole. You know what I'm saying?
0: I did. I had brushed elbows. Well, maybe not brushed elbows. Theirs usually sat around the top of my head and mine hung somewhere around most people's midsection. I'm not the tallest of girls, even in foreign shields. But there's a certain dismissal that certain academics have towards outsiders. It's not a very nice feeling, and I sympathize with Jamie. Leeb's theory was that Sylvester Woods was jealous of Cole, of his work and of his success.
2: Really? Hmm. You know, now that I think of it, that could be it. He always kind of admired Cole, but not in like a puppy dog kind of way, but in like, have you ever seen that movie Amadeus?
0: I hadn't. I know, it's a classic but it's in my Netflix queue, I swear. I told him I hadn't and asked him to go on.
2: Okay, well, it's really great. The movie is about Mozart's life, but told to the point of view of his best friend, Salieri, who's not just his best friend, but his greatest rival. Salieri, doomed forever to live in Mozart's shadow, plots and executes his murder. And in doing so, Mozart becomes one of the most important musicians of all time, a fact which drives Salieri insane. That is the way Sylvester looked at Cole. That certainly is
0: interesting. It really was interesting. Jamie's theory, while I admit I may have walked him into a bit, perfectly lined up with the police's suspected motive. When talking to him, it never felt like he was forcing it or projecting Leebs's theory onto his past memories. This was clearly something he had thought about, or felt. Whether he had been able to express those feelings, I'm not too sure. But I could see it on his face as he was figuring it all out. It was like watching someone finally get a joke after thinking about it for a minute or two. Only this wasn't a minute or two, it was nearly two decades, and the joke was the disappearance and possible death of his best friend. I watched Amadeus after our interview, and I couldn't help but see how this sort of thing could have happened. Here was a man who was brilliant and well-respected in his field, working on something that could be world-altering. A man with a beautiful wife and gorgeous little girl. There's a lot to envy there. Oh, and Jamie was right. It really was a good movie. Okay. So let's say we buy into this idea of a Mozart and Salieri type relationship between Sylvester Woods and Cole Atkins. There's a few things we need answered. How did he do it? Like sure, there's the whole parking lot security camera footage that mysteriously and possibly conveniently went missing. But what? Sylvester Woods killed Cole in the parking lot of Revolver at 5pm on a Tuesday afternoon? That's as close to broad daylight as you could possibly get. But no, that didn't make sense. It could have possibly happened in Cole and Sylvester's lab, which is one of the only rooms, the other being Ronnie Truffaut's office, that did not have surveillance footage. Okay, so say it happened in there. Sylvester killed Cole without a single person hearing or seeing a thing. I can maybe buy that, but then there's still the manner of disposing the body, not to mention cleaning up a possible crime scene. The only way I can see it working is if Sylvester had accomplices, and that's plural because I find this hard to believe even with just one person helping him. But then I thought, and while scientists aren't exactly known for their criminal expertise, they do have certain skills, like careful planning and a knowledge of chemistry and biology that could be helpful, which opens the window for some of the more crazy ideas. But bear with me for a sec. Revolver frequently got shipments of a variety of chemicals, including large quantities of bleach, which can contaminate a crime scene to render evidence useless, but there are others, some of which could be used to alter the state or even get rid of a body entirely. It's actually quite an alarming idea. This company, headed by a known mass murderer, had unlimited access to the supplies they need to dispose of any body that needs to be disposed of. I found my mind going back to Walter White and Breaking Bad, but for entirely different reasons this time. All this, I'll admit, was a whole lot of speculation, and I knew there was only one way to get the story straight, if that was even possible, and that was to talk to Sylvester Woods myself. Finding Sylvester Woods wasn't easy. But when I did, he was actually pretty nice. He agreed to meet with me to discuss the case. I'll admit, I was a little apprehensive going to this guy's house. Despite my best attempts at giving this guy a fair shake, and despite being a logical, rational journalist that I know I am, I couldn't help but feel a little worried at the idea of meeting with someone who, no matter how far-fetched, could be a possible murderer. I've separated this conversation into three parts, which you will hear in the next three episodes. Partly due to length, but mostly because I feel like there are three very distinct stories being told. Here's part one of our conversation. You're a tough guy to track down.
3: I've become adept at obscurity.
0: But I did find you.
3: You're not who I'm hiding from.
0: Who are you hiding from?
3: People with paper-thin moral structures, propped up by stacks of money.
0: I see. Well, thank you for meeting with me.
3: A pleasure. But remember, you get to listen because I want to talk.
0: About Cole Atkins?
3: About everything.
0: Let me just take a second to sort of set the scene. While he asked me not to disclose his location, Sylvester Woods does in fact live in isolation. To get there, I drove about an hour, taking an undisclosed highway and a series of other roads—some dirt, some paved—into a small cabin, which is hidden away but actually pretty cute. On the outside, it's rustic and wooden and everything a cabin should be. Inside, however, is a glossy, techno-clean that you only really see in labs. Don't get me wrong, there's some obvious signs that he is clearly a bachelor, like a crumb-filled plate and a glass left about, or the occasional piece of scattered clothing. Oh, and the notebooks, everywhere. How can one man have so many notebooks? As for Sylvester himself, he's a thin man, with a prominent graying mustache to go along with a dusty coat of stubble. He watched me from over top a thick pair of round specks. His movements were jittery, and his eyes moved quickly, but became steady when they needed to be. He was not afraid of prolonged eye contact, something I can't say I'm overly comfortable with, but at the same time... There was an endearing quality to him. He seemed like, while his mind was racing and moving very fast behind pale, green eyes, he was thoroughly and genuinely taking in every word I had to say. Despite that fact, I don't think I've ever met someone that I was so sure was not on any kind of drugs, but was the physical embodiment of complete and all-encompassing paranoia. But don't take my word for it, here he is. I'm just gonna come out and ask. Do you know what happened to Cole?
3: The short answer is no. But you're not looking for short answers. Are you?
0: No, I'm not.
3: I have theories. Do I know what happened to him? Not exactly. But that's not the right question to ask.
0: Okay. What is the right question?
3: To understand what was going on, you need to ask what we were doing at Revolver and what they wanted us to be doing. What do you know about Revolver?
0: Regarding what? I know quite a bit. I've gone over employee records. I've talked to employees. I know about Ronnie and Jasper Truffaut. I know, or should I say I think I know, that their patents, their known research, the alternative energy engines, was some kind of a front. For what? Well, I'm hoping you can answer.
3: You're only scratching the surface.
0: Okay. Tell me about Revolver, then.
3: Was something illegal going on? Probably. But not with us. Cole and I were hired to work on nuclear-based mechanics and engineering. That wasn't Cole's expertise. But I don't think I'm speaking ill of his abilities. That's not what I mean. Cole was a great scientist, but he was a theoretical physicist who only dabbled in nuclear engines. From the moment he was there, I suspected he had other interests. Which were nonsense mostly but revolver being funded by who they were had equipment and technology that would make most top level universities foam at the mouth cole saw access to resources he would never get otherwise so he used his time at revolver to tackle personal projects which ronald seemed to love he had found Cole and took a shining to him thought he was brilliant
0: did that make you angry
3: He got a lot of credit for ideas that weren't entirely his. At worst, I was annoyed, but I got over it.
0: You were his assistant, though, were you not?
3: Hardly. He may have had the word head before his title, but it was in title only. We were colleagues. Hold on for a second.
0: At this time, Sylvester got up and checked a few things on his computers, as well as his security monitors. He even checked, very discreetly, out of his front bay window, He came back shortly, flustered, and seemingly occupied. I decided I need to steer the conversation more in my favor.
3: Sorry, where were we?
0: I want to talk about that day. The day he went missing. Specifically, the end of the day.
3: You mean when he left?
0: Yeah. How well versed were you with Revolver's security system during that time?
3: I see what you're doing.
0: What? What am I doing?
3: You want to know about the missing security footage.
0: You know about that?
3: Of course I do. I'm the one who has it.
0: Next time on Broadcast Mysteries. Broadcast Mysteries is produced by Joshua Roach. Music by Michael Feen. Logo and graphics designed by Alex Daranowski and hosted by me, Carolee Gerwing. Special thanks to Vince Smuda, Jason Vandeviver, Mackenzie Leap, Kevin Martin, The Lobby Video Store, Will Pfeiffer, Nuno Solaire, and Sarah Pullen. If you'd like to support us, follow us on Twitter at BC Mysteries, on Facebook and Instagram at Broadcast Mysteries, or you can email us at broadcastmysteries at gmail.com. Follow us or visit our website at broadcastmysteries.com for details.